Turn on your mechanical translator. Oh, uh, well, sure, of course. I've uh, got them right here. My guess is, sir, that they use microwaves for what uh, you might call person-to-person -person conversation. The basic idea is that there's a groove that I can follow that's exactly right for me to live in an optimum way. Truth. And soul! Truth and Soul Incorporated. The New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Uh, hello and welcome. Today's chat will be a little different. I'm talking to Mark Kilgore and Hugh O'Connor, who are from the University of Waikato. Now, uh, don't run off screaming. They've spent many years researching creativity and advertising, so we hope to learn what it is that we're doing wrong, how we can do it better, and whether academics can actually make themselves understood to the rest of the population. Uh, we talk about creativity, what it actually is, and whether or not anyone can be creative or if you need it in your genes. So, if you never went to university, Get yourself a case of cheap beer, set fire to the sofa, and find out what you missed out on. You'll be amazed, hopefully. We're going to split this podcast into two because uh, the guys covered a lot of interesting subjects and it's quite in depth and it's quite a rich chat. So here is episode one. Welcome back to the Truth and Soul New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Uh, today in the Franklin Road studios in deepest freeman's bay we have few and mark from the university of waikato now this is a bit of a bit of a change from the normal um sad old uh, advertising guests that that we have but these gentlemen have um been looking into maybe the science behind creativity if there is such a thing uh well i'll, I'll let them get uh get more into that and so how exactly did you did you get interested in advertising creativity and the the science behind that uh, thank you paul um i started looking at this so this is mark by the way yeah um i started looking at this probably the late 1990s i was in singapore at the time i was doing some consultancy work there but also doing some research um, and looking to do a PhD. Um, in Singapore, if you know Singapore at all, it's a very structured environment. Yep. Um, the kids from about six years old are whole, doing a whole lot of extra tuition, um, very much that sort of rigid learning type environment. They were really interested in creativity, however. They didn't want to... The school system or the kids? Uh, well, in Singapore, it's all pretty much, it's a benevolent dictatorship, yep. if you like. Um, so it's really what the Allegedly the best form of government. Indeed, yeah. yes. Uh, so incredibly efficient, but you can only go so far in terms of efficiency. So they were concerned about following that Japanese model, which they saw, which was incredible efficiency, but maybe losing out some of that creativity in there. Yeah. So the government was starting to say, we want creativity in this process. And I was looking at thinking, from a non-academic perspective, how do you actually do this when you've got such a structured process? Yeah. So I was really interested in creativity in the creative process. And then I thought, well, where did we do research in the space? And the great thing about the advertising industry, you've got this microcosm of people whose entire job is to be creative. Yes. And so that's where I thought this might be a good place to start doing some research. And it is interesting that, that the, the copywriters and art directors are actually called creatives, which I, I don't know how that that came about. I think it's because there's so much crossover between the two. In the old days, it was you're a copywriter and art director, but now you're a... 
And that's that creative. Cause one or two problems with the research because when you write the word creatives, they don't know what you mean in the academic sense. Yeah. Um, yes. But certainly, yeah, no, this, those, that diet has been really insightful in terms of trying to understand that process. Every industry uh, invents its own its own terms to or misuses ordinary terms in order to try and confuse everyone else. Um, what about you, Hugh? Oh, well, my background um, essentially always interested in strategy as a whole and sort of the exploration of strategy. And uh, I guess that really came through in seeing how uh, leaders make decisions under uncertainty where we don't have a set of rules that you're playing with that we need to use. And uh, over time, working from sort of government through corporate and other areas, I kept saying there's something missing in our strategic models and always seem to be our real purpose and value for being um, in business. And it seemed to me, well, hang on, if we're trying to make a product that serves a particular group of people, or uh, even a service, if you if you will. Yeah. Um, so the service to the idea, then surely we should put them at the front end of it. And if we do that successfully, the rewards will flow back to our other stakeholders. Sorry, by way. them, you, you mean the strategists? Uh, consumers. Oh, consumers. Right? So from, from a strategic point of view. I always forget about that. Who, yeah, that's right. Uh, consumers. So we need that voice consumer. And, and as a walkthrough from this sort of high level of facilitation, um, with leaders in our organisations, I keep saying, where are, the, where are the customers? Where are they? Where is the voice of them? And which part of our organisation yeah. do we hear it? And the only place I've found it so far is really in advertising. It's starting to come back more into the marketing organisations. So um, so that, that's... That, 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 that's very interesting from a marketing point of view, that it's the agencies who uh, uh, who are considered to have, to, to have the voice of the consumer. You see it with clients in that they... They want to sell something, and uh, they they've manufactured it, or they plan to manufacture it. And too often, they don't really allow the consumers into the um, equation. It's what they want to do rather than what people want to buy. And it's then up to the agency to try and sell that. At which point, the agency points out that maybe the it's not the maybe not the, the right product in the first place. And we get this sort of reverse now with uh, big data. It seems to really have given marketing managers if you want, all data to legitimise a market, but really it's just giving them a lot of centralisation of their product. They see what the centre really wants and they start making a product directly to that group of people. So, yeah. And because the numbers are there, they can legitimise these decisions. In doing so, though, you're starting to miss a lot of differentiation out of the... And Henry Ford's famous quote that if I asked consumers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse... People don't know what they don't know. Mm. I, th I think uh, Apple were very, were very strong at that, in, in creating stuff that people, that, uh, creating demand for, for things that people that they didn't didn't know that they needed. And I think, if you look at the creative process in there, you sort of need to differentiate it a wee bit. You can do the PNG model, which is that incremental change really, really rapidly to move up to something different. And in that case, you might be able to have this consumer following along because they can say, I want it slightly faster, I want it brighter, I want it more colourful, whatever it is. But if you want to do that paradigm shifting, what yes. would turn to big C, and we see the same thing in the advertising, um, the consumer doesn't have the ability to do that. Are you familiar with, I think we, we talked about it in the podcast before, the, the Maya principle, M-A-Y-A, most advanced yet acceptable, that if you go you go too far with a consumer, you lose them. And I was wondering, from an advertising perspective, is that just the consumer or is that also the client? 
the it, it's funny in, in that the um, if 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 the agency is the voice of the consumer as far as the client's concerned, the client is the voice of the consumer as far as the agency is concerned. Or the, or the client likes to put on that hat, mm. but if so, it's generally it's a very conservative. It's a very conservative consumer who is hugely aware and hugely in love with that client's products, which, yeah, as we know, is is not generally the way that the consumer and, looks. And quite often, that um, the habit that can be formed, the consumer might have for a product, is not the same necessarily as that love and loyalty uh, of a very select group. There's a lot of other people to be brought into this process. Yes. Yeah, I, I, to to increase market share, you have you have to go wider, mm. a, and it's not enough to get the small core of people who like your product to buy more of it because they can't. People can generally only buy one car at a time, or in terms of beer, they can only drink so much beer uh, in a week. You have you have to widen the market rather than um, in, in increasing the capacity consumed within a, within a small group of loyalists. Mm. And I think marketers constantly. Over-exaggerate, sorry, exaggerate would do, uh, exaggerate the love that people have for their product. Mm. Again, the the consumer's buying a category of which you are hopefully the best option in that mode to fulfil the need of that category. Yes. Uh, They're not, ideally you you can take your competition out of the picture by being perfectly differentiated but as you move to the centre you become the biggest and most gravitational brand you then actually start to need to be creating boundaries that keep others out it has to become aspirational and this is this is Apple's success yes. um, is that they can only sell and they can charge a certain value to this select group of people and supply through a set group of suppliers who meet their expectations and others have to step up to become their consumer it, uh, in a sense, I, I, I think with Apple, the uh, Apple consumers were uh, worked to the the converters. People had, uh, people who consumed Apple so loved and fell in love with the product that they convinced their their friends, colleagues, acquaintances that if they weren't buying Apple, they were they were somehow mm. um, lesser people. <laughs> Um, but they had they had a fantastic product. Mm. The, I, the iPhone. I don't think you can uh, uh, overestimate the in the the way that the iPhone has changed culture. When you when you look back to to how life existed before it, and the the myriad of possibilities that you can uh, and that kids now just completely take for granted that yes, they have this. The old folk like me can remember a time when. They didn't have one. I, I don't throw my Apple products. Um, <laughs> other operating systems can sometimes find themselves flying across a room. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll duck when that happens. <laughs> so you, um, Mark, you 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 wanted to learn how it was that creatives did their job. When they when they have a brief that they say that there's a there's a new car, we need to sell as many of it as possible. A very simplistic looking brief. You looked at actually what creatives did. Yeah. So I really my premise initially because I went back like most academics do and looked at the literature. So yeah. what has been done in the past in regards to the science behind this, and really most of the models set up a number of stages. And I was quite interested in looking at within those stages, what can we do to improve the creative outputs? 
And most of the research in creativity looks at one small part of it, and it's the idea generation phase yes. and that sort of divergent thinking. And there's some really nice stuff around what you need to be a good divergent thinker. Um, a good what, sorry? Divergent thinker. Okay. So somebody who's able to come up with these highly creative ideas. Yeah. And speaking to people, again, at DDB. Um, so the, so uh, this was at DDB back in 2002-ish? Yep. Yeah, around then. Um, yeah. So obviously chatting with the likes of yourself, I think Peter was one of your creators? Peter Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember having a wonderful conversation with him. Um and I walked into the room and talked about how he came up with creative ideas. And he's talked about, oh, I've got a campaign he was working on at the time. I think it was some sort of restaurant. Uh, oh, no, it was a cat food campaign. And he says, okay, well, obviously I could do something really boring like have a, um, have a couple of cats sitting in front of a table and having a menu and talking about what's on there. But obviously that's too blasé, that's too boring. And I thought to myself, you've made a leap here, which most normal people wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, a level of inherent ability, uh, but there's also, within the literature, you can see there's a level of learning which can occur. Well, he, he does that. So he Pete, had, at the time, had been in advertising for, I don't know, 25, 30 yeah. years maybe. So that that was completely instinctive. Exactly. Uh, but what I noticed with a lot of the creators I spoke to, and not just in Auckland but in uh, New York and the other agencies I was doing stuff with is they would all have these techniques which they'd, they weren't aware of them they seemed to have internalised them so one of the others would have a dictionary which they'd go and they'd open up and get a completely random word yeah. so they'd have what I refer to as associative techniques so they'd jump to distant areas to give them some sort of different way of thinking about things. This is very different from the new creatives. So speaking with some of the new New, creatives, new as in younger. Yep, younger yeah. people coming in. And they'd be searching the internet and looking for, uh, for terms, but they'd be looking at more moving out from that central spot. So you have what's in the brief, and they'd just build upon that. So they'd move slowly out, that sort of PNG model, so that incremental small developments, where the really experienced creatives would have these internalised structures with a jump. Yeah, um, and they were able to do that, and that takes a different type of mind than is normal. So one of the elements I was looking at is the ability to use these creative thinking techniques, these associative abilities, and we tested that on different groups: the creatives, account people, and students, and saw what the effects were. The other area I was interested in is how we actually get locked into a box. What, as in, in creative or non-creative? Yep. So. In the literature, we talk about this in terms of what's a referred of clubs to clubs around Auckland where you can get that done. Yeah, yeah, slightly different type of creative we're talking about there. Oh, right. um, so, it's definitely put me off my train of thought. Mm. Um, so, mental set fixation is what they talk about in the literature, whereby if I have too much information in an area, it stops me thinking about different areas. Uh, and this is a Big problem. Again, if I provide you with a whole lot of information, um, suddenly we're talking about boxes and clubs and things, yeah. um, that can stop me thinking about a certain way. I, I can't get away from that chain of thought. So uh, so would an example of that be if, if you were advertising a car and it was you know, the speed of the windows closing and the, the, you know, the, the weight of the carburettor and the whatever, the individuals would just get overwhelmed Exactly, yeah. yeah. And my assumption was um, you'd give too much information in the brief, that might lock the creatives in. 
Uh, and so we did some testing around that. So we did different associative techniques. We did certain cues which would actually lock people in, and we saw what the effects were. And it was really quite interesting because the creatives weren't locked in because they actually were so good and they had these internalised techniques that they could jump anyway. But for the account people and for the students, they were more locked in by that sort of information and they were less able to actually use those associative abilities, um, but they were still able to use techniques to actually get them further away from what they would normally. Sorry, so Mark, when you say associative abilities, you mean the the ability almost instinctively without thought to go from... One, one Z. area yep. to um, another. Now, uh, uh, and, and I think an important question, w- which is often asked, is: uh, Is creativity inbuilt, or is it learned? And it's it's a combination. There's, uh, I like always to say with my class, look, I'm not Usain Bolt. I'm only ever going to be so fast. Obviously, I'm incredibly athletic, and the students all laugh. Unfortunately, yeah. um, I can no comment. Yeah, I, I can get so fast, um, but I could actually do some training and get a fair bit faster. Yeah. So same thing with uh, creative ability. There's a wonderful piece of research back, I think it's 1968, um, a guy called Mednick who talks about associative hierarchies. And some people have what we refer to as a flat associative hierarchy. So they can associate ideas which other people wouldn't be able to associate. And this is what we sort of did in some of our research. would say, okay, here's a product category. Um, let's use this word seagull and then use that to relate to that particular concept. Now, for the students, they, they just got completely lost. They couldn't do anything. For the creatives they could bring in that and use them. So they had this really flat associative hierarchy. They were able to use all these terms and actually make associations between these ideas which other people wouldn't get anywhere close to. So is it possible to take a, a younger person, I don't, I don't know, you know, whether it be a, a, a child of 10 or, or a student of 16, and give them a test and work out from that whether or not... They were creative. Well, this is the this is the, what we're tr- this would be the oh, what is the term I'm looking for? This would be the holy grail. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Mednick's test, for example, this guy who came up with the associative um, hierarchy, he developed the remote association test, and you might have seen this. Is we have two terms, and then you've got to have a third term that relates to this. Um, Unfortunately, with that, that encourages a certain way of thinking, encourages more sort of convergence. There's a right answer. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's other tests. Um, Torrance is another researcher who do a lot of work in the space. He would use a paperclip t- test, for example, and say, give me as many uses as you can for a paperclip. Yeah, I, uh, so I believe that in yep. the past, those tests were used by agencies. I think, say, in the 50s and 60s, if you went along and you were and you went, I want to be a copywriter, and they'd go, right, here's a paperclip, give me 50 uses for yeah. it. And the problem with these tests is they don't have any sort of um, association with long-term creative outputs because there's all these other factors. As I mean, mm. you'd be able to tell me all day about all the other things you need to be a successful creative. And again, I was but, hoping you'd tell me, but well, I'm I mean, still waiting to find out. <laughs> yeah. One of the things which, um, obviously, the structure within the organisation is important. Again, if we pr- allow creatives to be creative, they're creative. If one of the biggest issues we've found in the research, which is really consistent, is if they're not, if the client 
themselves, uh, the organisation that is asking for the idea, isn't willing to explore ideas, the creators pick up on that pretty quickly and they just stop being creative. Or they limit their their creativity and they go, well, it's got to have a pack shot, it's got to have a picture of the product and and it's got to have a, a line that talks about how wonderful it is and... That's about it. Really. And that's an intelligent adaption to uh, a social situation where they realise there's no control. Yeah. There's no point in us yeah. doing anything beyond what they're being asked for because it's not going to be listened to. Yes. And that, so these social elements come in and, and um, it's not all cognitive. It's not all about being able to think in very flexible and elaborative ways. Those are just one of the competencies that creative people need to have. Yeah, I haven't uh, worked with... Uh, um, car manufacturers in the in the past the starting point is if you're doing a billboard the starting point is it is it is a big um, picture of a car now to creatives that is it is the least creative thing that mm. you could do because 95% of car billboards have a large picture of the car on it I think this is this is where we start to get into some of where my research works in, which is how we then use the information. And we find that um, creators will set the information aside if it's not appropriate. And others will look at it and go, well, why is that information not being presented? Where's the message that we asked you to get through? Because we're making a mistake between the message that communicates with the consumer in the voice that the consumer can understand and take it in at the level that they do to achieve that level of awareness or other objective that the marketer wants. And the message a marketer wants to see represented across that. They don't understand that they can come through and uh, it, it may be presented in quite a different way. I, I, uh, maybe that the, the client wants, has what he wants to say, the consumer has what he wants to hear, and the creatives can translate between the two and make the client... What the client wants to say, what the what the consumer wants to hear, exactly, which may not look the way that the client, yes, envisaged, especially if they then step back into a rational processing model. It's I, I yeah I think it's very difficult for clients because they live and breathe and they have to that that old saying that um, uh, it's impossible to convince someone of something that their livelihood depends on them not believing in that clients intrinsically have believe or indoctrinated that their product is fantastic and the consumer might not always share that that belief and for the client well, we just have a, a wonderful picture of my of my new yogurt and people will see how and just say delicious and you're off and consumers don't work like that John Hegarty was saying that I think on your podcast yeah. the other week wasn't it that uh, he's going we'll make a better product yes um, yeah. that suits your customers not trying to sell them this one that doesn't get there yeah but i would add there's another key element of creativity and this element is often i think also underrelated well under emphasized in the academic research and that's the the capturing of attention the originality component yes so if you know a product very well i don't need to capture your attention i don't need to draw you to it Uh, and a lot of the creatives in the early research would say okay look it has to be more divergent it has to be more out there because it has to grab attention but the stuff we do in the academic research often uses what we refer to as forced exposure. We get people, we sit them down in front of the ad and we say, look at this, okay, what was important, what do you remember? Now, that's not the reality. Uh, So for 
the client, they know their product really well, they've already got that embedded knowledge. I don't have to therefore draw their attention to it. A consumer, I've got to hit them over the head just to get yeah. them to look at anything. So the originality component, I think, is more important, and I think the creatives realise that, Yes. Uh, whereas the client might have trouble realising that. I, th- I think that the media budgets come into play a lot there. Mm. And if you've got a, if you've got a large amount of money and you are, say, Coca-Cola, if you emblazon the world with um, billboards outside every um, dairy that, that say enjoy Coca-Cola and no, nothing of, of any interest, then that, that kind of... Um, ekes it way ekes its way into the into the the, um, the blood of the consumer, and it's like I know there's a robotic um, response to that, but it, 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 people don't generally have Coca-Cola's budgets, and if you're launching a little soft dr- soft drink and they try and advertise in the same way, it's just it's not going to work. Well, if you look at the effect, unfortunately, of advertising in the academic literature, yeah, it's minimal. But what we do see, if you do really creative stuff, it has a massive effect. And as we know, you'll have seen this in your career, yeah. those really, really creative ads can change industries. Yep. Um, so the, they can have this... Not m- always mine, but other people's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they can have these massive impacts because they, they get it right. So, sorry, I just uh, just going back there, the, for, um, ac- academic literature, does the advertising often doesn't work? Uh, it, it doesn't That's have, a big statement. Well, it, I wouldn't say it doesn't work. I mean, there is depending upon what you're trying to measure. If you're looking at those are sales effects, but of course you can be looking at parts of the process further up. Um, and again, what's the advertising as part of a broader campaign trying to achieve? So yep. the advertising might be more about that early stage cognition, the awareness, the initial attitude change, uh, whereas other elements, they might bring in the sales promotions, events and other things uh, in, in store, the merchandising to actually drive the sales. So yep. advertising effect on sales, again, some works, some doesn't, but the overall elasticity, across elasticities, the demand elasticities uh, of using uh, advertising itself aren't all that spectacular. I guess it depends. It depends on a lot of factors. Yes. It, de- it depends on on the ad, and of course, as John Haggerty would say, it depends on the product. And, and as Bill Birnbach would say, it's not, nothing kills a bad product um, faster than advertising. Well, the other thing you've got is again, like Coca Cola, you, you really can't see the true effect of advertising on a lot of the research because. You've got a baseline which is already quite high, yeah. and nobody's willing to stop all their advertising. And you're not going to stop everybody advertising in a particular industry just to see what the effects are. So, what you might be doing with advertising is just maintaining your existing market share. And for mature markets, therefore, you wouldn't see much of an effect unless you actually stopped advertising. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the, the, the sort of Changes in demand we see through advertising aren't that strong, but doesn't mean that it isn't actually having an effect on awareness, attitude change, and sales. Yeah. But what we do see is if it's the highly creative stuff, it can have quite a dramatic effect. But how do you judge? Is it, this is always difficult. How do you judge what is the highly creative stuff and what is not? 
And there's a whole lot of different measures used in the academic literature. And a lot of them use proxy measures. So they'll go and they'll look at the award shows and see who won the FE or the, yeah. uh, all of those awards and use that as the basis. Some will actually go and use the students uh, who are participating in the actual data collection and do some testing of them, some pre-testing of those ads to see how the creative they are. So there's a lot of different ways which the measurement is actually done. Quite often, or, or at least on occasion, an av- uh, advertising campaign will come out and the the automatic reaction of consumers to it is one of um, <clears throat> rejection. Um, oh, you know, no, that's, that's completely wrong. But that, it's made an uh, impression on mm-hmm. them and over time that gets reversed to, actually, oh, I love that. That thing that first shocked me the first time I saw it. Totally agree, and that is also a problem because uh, you've really got to think about how often you're collecting that data to see what those effects are. And often, again, it's just one point in time where we're actually able to collect that data. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, more longitudinal studies, more studies over a long period of time are certainly needed. Uh, yeah. So uh, um, creatives in themselves, how do they... or? Uh, people who are creative, how do they differ from the general population, if at all? Well, again, I I think they do have this flatter associative hierarchy. I think they take in more information um, all of the time. That's how they work, but how how would would you outwardly, do they dress differently? Do they... Uh, Actually, that's one of the the studies that uh, has been done on Hollywood. Creatives, for example, says that they have to adopt the uniform essentially right. these writers over time get them to yes. the black t-shirt and the jeans and whatever starts to look like the creative should yeah. um, in order to pitch their work to the people with the money yeah if you, you know to look like a creative for the creative themselves I'm sure that's a fairly unnecessary aspect because they're used to expressing themselves as they are um, and it's probably the conformity we use one of the problems with evaluating highly creative ideas is it's difficult Um, because if you're making this connection between two really unusual ideas you've done that based upon your own knowledge you might have gone out and collected data on what the client wants to find out you've done your own research so you've embedded some knowledge and then you make this connection between two unusual thoughts Uh, you can see how they're connected because you've got the knowledge of those two unusual memory categories. Somebody else who doesn't have that same memory, so that same knowledge, will have problems doing that evaluation. So we often, when we're looking at creators, we use sort of rules of thumb. Uh, So they look outlandish, they act unusual, therefore they're creative people, therefore we're more likely to accept those unusual ideas for them. Um, So probably this is, and one of the things, again, back to what creators have to do within agencies. I mean, one of the big things which creators were saying to me again and again and again is half our job is a selling job. Right. Um, how do they get better at that? Because we're, we're presuming that it, it, selling their creative or, or may work is a good idea. We're not, we're not trying to bludgeon clients into buying things that are going to ruin their business. <clears throat> if we accept that, that creative thoughts and advertising is going to do a better job for the client, yet th- there can be a, a certain drawing back from that because it's it's a, a little bit scary and, and not a connection that they would e- easily make. 
How would you advise creatives to go about well, well, I think selling their work? How they do it is reluctantly often. Um, and it's the same thing. We have the same issue in academia. I mean, we, we're not necessarily seen as highly creative, but we have to come up. I mean, our job is really to develop new ideas. Yeah. And we have to go through that same sort of process of selling it. So we have to identify, okay, what are those appropriateness criteria which the people are going to use? What is the processes that we're going to go through? Therefore, how do we structure the work we do? So that we can see the same thing with the creatives. They've, they've really got to understand what the client wants and, and sometimes just window dress it to actually get the idea across and and swallow a swallow a big pill sometimes um, you see that when when you have a client uh, that the creators are actually able to be in the meeting with at the early stages and uh, when it's a very generative meeting uh, where expectations are set and brief is say co-created mm-hmm. then at the same point you can get well, okay, what are the performance measures how will we be evaluated on this and whether those measures are based on the outcome more um, or is it the output? You know, do, oh, you need four ads out of this, right? That qu- that's quite a different what, what, perspective what the, as the well. The physical, yeah, the physical output. output. So if if it's a physical output measure, you're focused on the wrong answer to your business problem, and that's quite a different way of framing it. So you're in the room, and you can get the understanding together of a generative process rather than a competitive process, then that's a safe environment for the creators because there's an opportunity to explore both a, both a personal dynamic um, and the category dynamic, the business problem itself. Uh, and this is where, I guess, you know, the best creative directives come across because they now know how to balance that skill over time of managing the client relationship as well as the... Uh, creative outcome. So with with the client, in, I think in, in the old days, the thought was that say if you had you had a new campaign to present to a client, you you'd have a meeting and you and you go through the meeting and, and you you know lead up and talk through their strategy and uh, and whatever, and then there would be a big big reveal and the lights would go down and it would be da-da! And there'll be a, you know, a hedgehog with pineapple on its head or something, and they go there, and the client would go, "Oh my God, what the, what the hell is that about?" Mm. But if you, if the old um, you know, lobster in the in the pot of boiling water, if you just turn it up, so you have the client involved in the process all the way through, so you're taking away the shock. You introduce him to the hedgehog, mm. and you introduce him to the pineapple, and you, it will get friendly over a period of weeks, and then, uh, so at the end, they're. they're Hedgehog with a pineapple on his head is completely That's right. normal. And, and ideally the best client would be able to come and have this early meeting and then, I think this is probably uh, Mike Watson, step away for the majority of that to allow the space. Yeah. Um, coming back in at the process points where you need that. So they come on the journey with you, understanding fully what the outcome will achieve and that that may be quite different from what they envisaged. I mean, that's why you've hired an agency, is to do something uh, that you don't have the capability inside currently to do, whether it's because of time or uh, cognitive space to actually sit down and think through the strategy and how to to best approach it. I think think that phrase, the outcome is not what you envisaged, is is really important. And And I think for a client that is potentially... Uh, ooh, moment, it needs a bit of thinking. Whereas for a, a creative director, 
you so you've kind of been working say you have a couple of teams working on the brief and you've been thinking about it vaguely in mind and and the, the teams come in, a, in a, for a view and when a team presents something that goes beyond what you'd expected that's when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you go ah right okay and that it completely uh, generally completely opposite reaction to a client you know you're for a creative director it's excitement and for a client it's fear and and really that this is where the creative directors are such a pivotal and important role mm. because those boundary spanners understanding the client what they'll accept being able to push the client to actually go further than they normally would and also protect the creative and allow them to be creative yeah because creatives in organizations they want to be developing weird and wonderful ideas they want to be doing these divergent connections but that process itself takes a lot of cognitive effort you did ask you about you know what the creative can be and and uh chicks and mihai one of the um researchers uh, of flow you might have heard of the flow theory I'll oh. pretend to okay, say yes, pretend. but no. Okay, uh, so yeah, if you can say his name, it's this great big long name, uh, Chiksen Mihai. Uh, and he talks about the creative personality as encapsulating most of what, say, Young would call the mature personality in, in its whole. And despite all the immature behaviours you might see coming out of it, it's one that can embrace all of those dimensions of humanity that may be in play in that moment when they're thinking it through. And probably for an early creative who could be very frustrated by the client's um, inability to see the value of their ideas, they've had this insight, an insight, and it's a connection at such an intense level that they then need to express it. This is, a, this is how it's going to hit. And so that can create a lot of conflict within the individual and, and so a creative director a very good creative director has probably overcome uh, that and learns okay that's alright I can have more ideas they're yeah. not going to accept that we can step away from it maybe a younger more junior hasn't had that maturity level to to do so yet uh, to, to me two uh, uh, two different different ways of creativity that that come about and one is the uh, um, if you have if you have a problem to keep going back to it to keep actually trying to solve it and to push it and to go 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 back and back again and 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 make these connections and and it's quite it's quite painful I think people outside the industry laugh at creatives going fuck it's hard work doing that and they go well you know I'm I'm digging a ditch or doing whatever and you're sitting there trying to think out of things but it's it's mentally draining. Mm. The, the other one is that you can, that I, I, as a writer, and maybe as an art director, you do it physically, um, you, you would draw it. As a writer, I can start writing something and I've no idea where it's going to go. I've no, no uh, um, uh, authors can go, so some authors like plan it out and we got right, the, you know, we got 14 chapters and these are all the points we have to hit and others. And other people sit down and go, right, two, two people meet and it just goes off. For me, that is, that is a magic part of creativity when even as the creator, you have absolutely no idea the next word that is going to come out of your pen and it, and it just hits there. How does, what is the, the cognitive process that, causes that so that's an easy question 
it's two two starting points. Um, there's seen in, in sort of research around drugs, for example, is yeah. if you start from this conversion point of view again, where uh, you have a set sort of again frame that you're writing into then you stay, your search stays within that parameters. You never yeah. really do it. Whereas from a divergent point of view is you go, okay, we have a problem to be solved and you go on that journey and and, and um, that is the first part of the process towards greater ideas, which then you need to then narrow back down to what's appropriate once you can see the direction of it. The divergent, this is Mark's research as a whole, it, it comes out and says that's the important way. If you start convergent, you just don't spread it. Uh, wide enough in terms of its originality to to. But, but I think that blinkers are actually really useful because they stop you g- g- being com- completely irrelevant. And yes, because again, a high intake of knowledge. Well, which one is the area we're going to filter? Well, uh, to, to me, the sorry, the just quick, the worst brief is do an ad. Now, right. I, I, yeah. I, I, I often. Um, uh, juniors or students will go, oh, you know, this brief is so constrictive, it's, you know, I have to do a, a billboard that says, what's it? But to me, I hate, you know, it's do an ad and you you can do absolutely anything. You need to have blinkers to con- to con- yes. give you some idea of the way that you're going. Yeah, and, and this, again, it was interesting looking at, um, I remember going to, there was a, a New Yorker creative who was I'd been speaking to at an agency, and he was doing um, some classes for for up and coming. Uh, and he kept on saying in the classes to yeah. these these kids, essentially, "Be divergent, be divergent, be divergent." I want new ideas. I want different ideas. But then his entire evaluation of those ideas they came up with was around the appropriateness criteria. Hmm. Um, and it was the same thing, I think, even. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. I but was he was he critical about them when they and he go right? I've, you know, I've got to judge it. And you go, well, that's got nothing at all to do with the issue. And then yeah. the, they go, but you told me to. exactly. Yeah. yeah. But but then he always came back to the appropriateness. So we see this in copy testing was one of the areas that um, so I looked at yeah, copy used, testing. Uh, used copy, uh, so uh, pre-testing, yeah, uh, or post-testing, yeah. those things. Now, creatives know and expect that it's going to happen on particular accounts. But the nature of what's being measured becomes very important. And what we found is that you can actually get a lot more originality through copy testing on those measures when they're looking at, again, those outcome performance areas because it just provides this frame of what it has to hit as a whole to keep the uh, creative somewhat restrained but still allows that freedom. But if those copy testing measures are used to sort of evaluate the performance of a creative rather than the campaign if that makes sense okay no i'm lost there so so uh, so what how how well it resonates with the consumer uh yes so that can be a good thing so the, yeah. when you're trying to make that's the, that's the point rather than you know how how well an ad works um so it creates the copy testing creates a frame uh if it's used as performance measure on the creative, on them personally, if that sort of feels, if it starts to feel that way about it, then it does become restricting because it feels like you don't trust me to do my job. Um, and the focus then shifts again in the mind to the wrong in the mind, In the mind of the creative? Yes. Yeah. To, to the wrong... Um, you've lost your purpose in trying to reach that consumer. You're starting to then make that ad rather than the bigger frame. 
so yeah, it becomes an information itself about the political environment, not necessarily about the outcome hitting that target. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I would interpret that in a slightly different way. If you, some of this, these sort of particularly post-test measures um, are fine because I can actually fit in the little brand elements and all those aspects, which then will hit and meet those criteria. Um, and so therefore I feel I can be highly creative and just add that sort of window dressing around the edges at the end just to pass the test. Right, okay. So yeah, you're advertising your, your yoghurt again. You can, it, can, it can be set in a, in a, um, on Mars with a bunch of aliens playing um, rugby, but yep. then as long as you have a pack shot and a line at the end that says, eat sunshine yoghurts, they're great. Yep, you're going to pass the test, exactly. Yeah. And the tests are, I mean, we all know tests are, are problematic. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we talked about um, Henry Ford and his research before. The idea of getting a group of people together in a room and sitting them down, the idea that they will tell you the truth and what they actually feel as opposed to what they think that other people that will make them look good to other people in the room mm-hmm. um, it is very it's very unlikely and and people yeah you know, when you see ads you generally see it more than once the the fir- and the first time you see it you might as a consumer might go what and the second time you go ah mm. if you're, you're researching with consumers they see it once and the the reaction you know and yeah. Uh, repeat repeat viewing is generally built into the process and really important. Yeah, you're only ever tested on on seeing it once. Yeah, yeah, and it is a problem. Um, and and what you talked about earlier in regards to again, you've got the Coca Cola, you've got the media everywhere, you've got the huge budgets, um, and yet that need to actually grab the consumer if you're a small company, um, break through all that clutter, uh, that requires that much more divergent original stuff. And that, again, is the stuff that has the breakthrough. So I always say to my classes, hey, you can do two things. You can spend a huge amount on the media or you can do something really creative. Mm. Now, yeah, <laughs> which is easier. Yeah, But actually being highly creative isn't easy, as you said. I mean, if, if you're sitting down and you're writing a book and you're going out randomly, um, if you're somebody who has a really what we call, again, back to the dissociative hierarchy, this the steep dissociative hierarchy, you can't connect different ideas together. You're not going to go anywhere with that. No. But if you've got a flat dissociative hierarchy, you can connect lots of different ideas and you're bringing in all these different thoughts because that's the way your mind works. You're going to come up with something weird and wonderful. So, And there's only so much we can train that. We can improve it. Uh, we've all had creativity classes and you move people from being, a, let's say, a C to a B. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you can't necessarily move into an A. Yeah, there was there was a there was a theory that I heard that the only that everyone was creative, and the only difference was that creative people thought they were creative, like someone had. Yep, and I told just I disagree with that entirely. That's good. Good. No, I I think again there are people with much flatter associative hierarchies. Yeah, I mean they just jump all over the place, and sometimes it's hard to follow them. Yeah. Uh, Oh, this guy, for example, yeah. um, sometimes very yeah. jumps around and, and incredibly creative. Will yeah. we'll jump from idea to idea, um, and that's great. But sometimes, of course, you lose people because they can't follow that. Yeah, they can't follow those leaps. Up the Congo with Kurtz. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's 
um, interesting, and it's good to to have a, a sort of definitive definitive point of view on that. And I, I guess this is something for parents to look out to look out for in kids, just because a kid isn't necessarily capable of, of making those creative leaps. Doesn't mean he's a bad person. It just means that that maybe there's other areas to. Um, all, all go into, which is like 98% of jobs. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and we can be creative in two ways. We can do small incremental steps and, and move out to that distant area. Yeah. So again, what we're tr- doing with creative is we're combining two different areas. Uh, and we can either make that big leap, which is really tough, and once we've made that big leap, nobody else can see that idea. It's just too big. And those two ideas aren't connected. Or we can slowly move out from that starting point. And if we do that really fast, we might get to that big leap, but it might take us a very long period of time. But then we'll have all the little incremental steps people can follow. So I, I've got in, tr- uh, in trouble by suggesting that it's very useful for planners, for strategists in agencies. So for creative to make the big associative leap from yogurt to a restaurant on Mars, say, for the planner to justify why that cognitive leap makes sense and give it some kind of logical form mm-hmm. so that kind of go, oh, of course, that's how natural we've got a, yes. we've got a restaurant on Mars. Um, yeah, that, that, that someone else can come in and justify why it, it, it's, it's been done. Because a, a brief to, uh, says, well, where A, we, uh, we want to get to B and the, the, there's a road between it. Uh, and A being we have this product and B being we want the consumer to go, oh, I like the look of that product, that, that that's quite, sounds quite interesting. And, uh, and the brief lays out a roadmap to get there. What creatives can do, go, well, I don't like, no, that roadmap's fine, but why don't we take a helicopter and we can go around that way and we end up in the same place. And I've seen strategists or planners go, oh, but you haven't followed my roadmap, mm. to which my point, well, it doesn't matter, you're going to get to the same place and it and it's and it's more interesting. Can you help uh, just uh, justify that or explain that to a client, how a, a leap of faith mm. can actually put you in a better place? And I hate to say it, I think that's a large part of what their role should be and they should accept that that's their role. Yeah. Um, because you, you want the creators to be creators. You want them to come up with something which is a bit different because that's really important in that consumer process. And the client might lose, as you said, that focus on that that need for that part of the process. Mm. The, the, the plan then has to become the voice of rationality yeah. in that, that conversation. Yeah. Um. I mean, one of the things in one of the more recent pieces of research is looking at the problem with the valuation of creative ideas. Yes. Because this is obviously a huge issue for the industry, yeah. but academia hasn't looked at it pretty yeah. much at all. Um, and again, what we're finding is if you are having these really divergent ideas, other people can't see it in terms of the appropriateness. You can see an idea as original. If I can, if I connect marketing with rocket science, um, somehow connect those two ideas, people say, okay, well, it's different. It's unusual. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard for anybody else to see how those ideas actually work, how appropriate they are. Um, so this is really the big problem. Uh, how do you actually get the clients to actually see that that idea, that this this what comes across as a wacky idea, is actually appropriate for them, actually makes sense for them, and that can take a lot of time and a lot of effort. It, it's it's difficult because yeah. the client the client's job depends on the success of it, yeah. and and the client has to go back to the rest of his uh, um, 
client colleagues yep. within the organisation, sales, um, uh, up to C-suite and go, oh, I've got, I've got this work idea. I really think it could, you know, there might be something in it. And he has to take all those with him. And think, that's difficult. The classic case, of course, is the uh, Dove um, campaign for beauty, yeah. which was exactly this. The market research was coming back saying, look, women are no longer... Um, associating with these waif-thin models, for example, it's not their real shape, and yeah. they're sort of it's starting to instead of being aspirational, it's starting to be a negative yeah. uh, judgment on themselves. Yeah. So we need to start showing them, and to do so, it, I think it was inside of a planner who then said, "All right, well, we need to do something different to get through to this male industry that this is not how females see themselves," and they did that by then filming. Um, or basically doing ethnography with the daughters of the male industry who could now, and, and putting that in front of it. So uh, that in itself, a creative act for selling in to, to the client. But that originally, I think, was was done in one market. I think it started in Canada. Mm. So they, it didn't go to, to Dove mm. headquarters in, in somewhere in the in the States and go, hey, we've got this massive global campaign. No, somewhere on the periphery, and, and, you know, change happens on the periphery, Canada, um, comes up with this idea. And then they, and then everyone else looked at it, went, oh, that's interesting, Mm. and built it into their their, Mm. um, global marketing. And this is, uh, again, in the research, and this will be no, no surprise to you whatsoever, the companies who are more creative in terms of their advertising are those ones who are having problems with their their brand, uh, their sales are going down, they're having issues, or they're new companies who actually need to break through. So it's that risk propensity, if you like, of that client. Yeah. Uh, because creativity is risk. It's moving away. If you're a strong existing brand and everybody has got this embedded knowledge as a consumer about what you're currently doing, and now you say you're going to do something different, that's really... But I, I would say, I, I, I would say, and I have some evidence to support this, that it isn't risk. And ri- risk is an, a, a word that I always like, I dislike using in the agency. I, I've heard um, uh, members of the agency trying to sell work into clients by going, I know it's risky, but it, you know, it, it could really be great. It, it, it isn't risky. It, uh, d- doing the same as everyone else is doing, that's, yep. that's uh, the risky uh, bit. And, and I'm not, I, I agree with you entirely. Uh, it's their perception of risk, though. For them, yeah. it's risky. The, the clients have a tendency to, to look at the resource deficiency they have and turn it into a, a, a sort of dyad, a, a, a continuum between risk or not risk. Yeah, right. right. And yeah. for an agency, it's, yeah. well, no, actually, there's all these other elements yeah. that exist. And, and if you can twist into that element, then you get that new position yes. that will uh, pay off. Yeah. I I think it, it's not just that to do that to be ordinary is risky. It's that consumers, if you've been uh, there's a, there's a great feeling amongst clients that well, uh, sale this product's been around for eighty years and sales have been sales have been consistently good over that time. If uh, and they've kind of fallen into a bit of a doldrum now. If we do this campaign that that repositions repositions it and and has great cut through and and everybody notices and and the potentially some negative reaction to it, but potentially some really positive reaction to it. Um, we can't do that because everyone will stop buying the product. I don't that it, I don't accept that, and my experience does not bear that out. People don't suddenly go, well, I've seen that ad for the, this beer that I've been drinking for 20 years. No, I don't really like the ad, so I'm going to stop drinking the beer. That That doesn't happen. Unless it's really, really bad as an ad. 
I I think that pe- that pe- people are uh, creatures of habit. I, I agree. I mean, there's the. It'll be a real challenge to do one that bad, but uh. yeah. Well, I mean, I look. I uh, use my 100 level class. I showed the old. Do you remember the back when was it? It would have been 80s. Gillette, the best a man can get. Yeah. Campaign. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that was a motive. Um, it was really powerful. I mean, there was some back in the days when I was starting to shave. I looked at that, and that actually brought me in as a consumer. Um, it was probably the first time I thought about this type of product. Um, used all these years. Then you got this new campaign coming through. And there are, so what was uh, this campaign? Obviously, uh, in America, it had a oh, backlash. Right, right, right. Yep. Um, so yeah, it was they, the, they be, the best the man can be. Um, yeah. And had some connotations that uh, obviously men, um, it showed men whistling at a woman walking down the street, doing derogatory stuff, um, uh, letting the kids beat each other up, and saying, hey, actually, we can do better than that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I remember. And it had a lot of backlash in that American market. It obviously came out. Well, well, well there's backlash, and yep. and there's uh, and there's people going, um, yep. oh my god, I don't I don't like that. But and there's yep. also, well, I, I don't like that ad, so I'm going to stop buying this razor that I bought. Yep, indeed. And so I s- said to the class exactly what you're saying. For me, again, I've used Gillette for all this year. I'm just going to keep on using it. Um, I really like the initial ad. This one, I'm not so. Um, I'm not fussed with it, um, but that was really trying to expand their market share. It's probably looking at that female market with the raises and things. I'm, I'm sure it was looking at Dove yep. and going, we we need to do, and, and this happens, clients yep. will, will look at it and go, oh, that, that's made a, a real, yep. we need to do the equivalent for. Yep. So uh, it was now, one of our colleagues' research was, was along these lines, and um, so she looked at products that were predominantly masculine, and that they could be taken and sold into the female market, spread in that way. It doesn't work as well the other way around. Men buying female products, no. No, and, uh, regardless of what you mm. do. Uh, there's, there's sort of this directional flow from masculine idea to feminine idea, um, and the other one is much slower. Yeah, and you can, you can look at the reasons to, to that. Beer, for example... You can uh, you can ha- you can have a beer, and women will look at the ad and go uh, uh, aimed at men, and it'd be quite blokey. And women will look at that. Yeah, it's perfectly acceptable to drink that beer. Mm-hmm. If you if you have a beer ad aimed at women, men will will not touch it. Mm. Exactly. Uh, I think Nike is another interesting case um, with the Colin Kaepernick situation. Yes. Of course, when that emerged, uh, making a very very deliberate statement of actually we're going to take this value and adopt it, in which case there is a lot of outrage and protest from uh, a particular segment who went out and burnt their Nikes. That's great. They can say, hey, it's time for us to move from your consumer values to these values, and sorry if you're not part of that. You can leave and then be public and leaving. We create, again, that differentiation with our brand to increase value. Yeah, I think when, when you have, I don't know, there's, there's maybe five major uh, sportwear brands and as a consumer you, you go in, and, and which Nike was probably the leading one, you go in and there's, if you go, you're either with Nike or you're against Nike, you've reduced it to two. Uh, and therefore, that should help sales. Mm. I don't actually know what what the what the sales result was from the cabinet campaign, I, which I, I support. It, yeah. Initially, yeah, they had a bit of a 
but it, it, it took off. Yep. The, st- the stock yep. uh, market changed a little bit as people who buy stocks just changed their position on yeah. it more yep. than anything. But there wasn't an immediate effect, but certainly within about a month, their mm. sales had rocketed up. Yeah. yeah. So again, you're right. I mean, a lot of those existing consumers won't change their behaviour and maybe we're just targeting that new market. Uh, and expanding out, so that's where we've got to be creative. I think this is uh, this is something that, that maybe Trump did uh, in his election, and it became so when he was running for the nomination from the Republican Party, where, when there's I don't know eight different candidates, he went he he went so much out on the limb. Mm. So instead of being Trump being one of eight, it was for Trump or against Trump. So you then have you then have fifty fifty, mm. and, and we know how that one went. Oh, that is, um, I'm not a big fan of Nike's current work. I don't find that creative at all. Yes, it's very interesting that they have... Like the editing of the... Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting from a technique basis yes. and a lot of work that went into it. But as far as the messages that they communicated, it's very much begging for relevance. And I, I don't think it sticks with their brand particularly at all. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw a lot of it on, on Twitter, which is my social media of choice, but it was generally, it was, wow, look at the editing on this. Mm. And, and it's a short-term burn yeah. uh, at best. It doesn't do anything to help build the brand. Yeah. Okay. Um, Nike, pay attention. You've been listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. End of part one.